And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast late on a Monday night on the East Coast. And it's late because our guest is joining us from the opposite coast, Los Angeles, California. Lakers, third-year player, recently re-signed, Team USA member, international sensation. I'm not sure that, that that's that we're quite there yet. Austin Reeves, how are you? I'm good. How are y'all? I'm good. It was a big summer for you. Do you feel like you got enough rest and recovery? I mean, it's like that's the first big, long NBA season, playoff grind. You feel ready to go? Yeah, I do. Um, the first, you know, couple of months after the season, that's all I was doing was chilling. You know, obviously I was in the gym a little bit, uh, just working on my game, but playing a lot of golf. And um, like you said, just trying to get that downtime because I knew with the, the USA stuff coming up, it was going to be, you know, a long, you know, a little bit over a month and then go right into the season. Someone close to you, I, I'm not at liberty to reveal who this is, Oh gosh. told me that, that when Rob Polinka told told your crew hey grant hill grant hill's going to reach out about team usa some people within your inner circle perhaps perhaps people who don't believe in you as much as they should uh said wait is, is he going to be on the, the select team like well, what do you mean rob this and the, the select team is really good there's no problem being on the select yeah. team and rob was like no no team usa the one that's going to the the FIBA world cup to to play in manila etc did you think you it was going to be a select team call uh, you know, to be honest, I didn't really, you know, think about it. Um, you know, I knew uh, that the, the the World Cup was this summer and uh, I didn't really know what to expect. But uh, like I said, once the season was over, I, I went home basically and started golfing every day and uh, kind of just got away. And then <clears throat> I wasn't thinking about it. And then that's when uh, Aaron and Reggie both called me and was like, oh, we got some big news. And uh, when they said it, um, I didn't know if they still had, you know, like what was the tryouts where they, they send a lot of guys there and then you, they pick from after that, uh, the Vegas part. But um, I didn't really know what to think about it. Um, but when, you know, we got on the phone, me, Aaron and Reggie, you know, they basically was like, no, it's like, it's a real thing. Like um, you have a chance to actually play on the USA team. So right then and there, I was like, obviously this is, this is a no brainer. What surprised you about the Team USA experience? Like, I don't, is there something, di what's different about it? What was surprising about it, it, the actually getting to do it and wear the uniform? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what a lot of people back here don't understand is, you know, the level of competition and how good, you know, teams are over there and uh, the continuity that they play with. And, um, you know, I was talking with Dennis and, Dennis Schroeder for it, but yeah. you're, you're, you are, I think you might be Dennis Schroeder's biggest fan within the I, NBA. He's I, a controversial I, figure. I love Dennis. Uh, you know, I've, you know, there's a lot of, you know, mixed emotions about a Dennis, uh, about Dennis, but, um, he was, you know, nothing but great to me, but I, like I said, I was talking to him and him and Tice have been playing together since they were like 14. So, um, it was different in the fact of, you know, our team, uh, you know, you got a couple guys here and there that, you know, are on our teammates now and have played together in the past. But for the most part, you're uh, throughout the whole process, you're trying to learn how to play with one another. And uh, that was really the the hardest part for, I would say, all of us. At some point in July, did part of you think you were either going to be a member of the San Antonio Spurs or get an offer from the San Antonio Spurs that the Lakers would have 
whatever amount of hours it is now to match? Like, did you start thinking about the Spurs and Wemby and fit and all this? Uh, you know, it definitely creeps into your mind, obviously, when there's, you know, a little bit of talks back and forth about, you know, something possibly coming to light. Um, but I didn't think that there was any way that the Lakers didn't match what, you know, ever, whatever was offered. Uh, they pretty much made it pretty clear that, um, that they were going to match whatever. So, um, you think about it a little bit, but at the end of the day, I wanted to be in LA. Uh, I love it out here, you know, love the organization, the fans. Um, but you know, you, you know, you hear things and obviously with, with Wimbanyama, like, you know, so much upside with him, you, you, um, you know, your mind kind of wanders just into that basketball world, just, you know, what that would be like. Are you going to be bitter for the rest of your career toward the San Antonio Spurs? for not lavishing upon you the maximum possible offer and forcing the Lakers' hands? Is this going to be in like five years if it's Lakers-Spurs in the playoffs? Is this going to be vengeance for you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to to be mad at, you know, making $54 million. So uh, that's way more money than I ever thought I would make, um, especially playing a basically a kid's sport for a living. Uh, you know, obviously I wish that, you know, could have got as much money as possible, but like I said, fit and opportunity, you know, here in LA was, you know, really what we wanted and, you know, really where we wanted to be. That's the polite answer. We need to get a little controversy <laughs> and a little spice out of you. And I thought of that because I know you've addressed this already on all the smoke with, with Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. They asked you about the biggest, the biggest story in life, which is Taylor Swift. They asked you about the Taylor Swift rumors, a lot of, yeah. a lot of rumors, you said, I've never met her, never talked to her. I'm going to choose to believe that, okay? I'm going to choose to take, take you at your word. When you were watching the Chiefs game yesterday and Travis Kelsey's coming out and there she is in the luxury suites and the whole world is losing its mind, did part of you think, I, I kind of maybe missed, like maybe that wasn't, the rumors could have been an excuse for me to reach out and, and like this could have been my life? Uh, no, not me. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a very simple person that likes to, you know, keep my, all, right. okay. all my business on the down low. So, um, yeah, I mean, she's literally amazing. Like, you know, music, you know, what she's done for her career has been, you know, her, her fans are literally the, you say the best fans in the world. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Not not for me, no. I, I'm happy with where I'm at. Okay, as someone who does not live in the celebrity industrial complex, when something like that happens, does someone from Team Swift, which I just imagine is like 400 people, reach out to Team Austin, which I imagine is like five people, and hey. say, and say, are you guys the source of this? Where is this coming from? Here's how we should handle it. Or is there no communication at all? I don't think there was any communication, um, not that I've known of, and I probably would have known of it just because my circle is so, so small. Um, but no, there was, I don't know. That one was so out of left field. Cause one, I don't go out. Like I'm a homebody. Uh, so me being in a bar, first of all, was far fetched. And then, you know, her being in Arkansas, I would assume is pretty far fetched too. I didn't know the rumors were centered on your home state of Arkansas. I didn't know that that's what it was. Yeah, they that's the extent of the research I did into this is I, did, I didn't sure. know the actual rumor. That's for sure. Um, okay, let's talk Lakers. Um, I've said on NBA Today 
with Malik Andrews and on this podcast that I'm actually like a little surprised given that you're the Lakers and everyone's talking about the Lakers all the time. I, I feel like you're not being discussed as a team as much as like a, a real inner circle contender um, as much as you would expect. It's like Denver this and Phoenix that and look at all this drama in the East. And I think part of it is people don't know what to make of how you flipped, not you, well, you personally and the team flipped your season like two thirds of the way through last year. You remake yeah. your team, you get a bigger role. You all of a sudden have like the best defense in the NBA for a prolonged period of time make the conference finals coming out of a low seed, get swept. No, no shame in that. That team won the title, lost four playoff games the whole time. Um, and I think people look at that sample size. They're like, was that, was that real? Was that a, not a fluke? Was it like somewhat fluky? And I think um, there are pe- people not being sure what to make of you is part of that. Cause you got elevated into this role, kicked ass at it. And I, th- I think there's some question, like, does Austin Reeves have another level to get to? And what do we make of that Lakers team? So why don't we start with the, the team part of it? Do you feel like we, we brought most of the key pieces back, added some key pieces? Do you feel like you guys are a true blue, like we can play with anybody? Yeah, I do. Uh, like you said, we brought back basically a core that went to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, you know, I think... You could call it fluky, whatever you want, but after the it was after the trade deadline, I think we had maybe the second or third best uh record in the league. With LeBron hurt and and either out or playing hurt for that whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, him being hurt, um, you know, not even really having a um any time to mesh, really. Like uh things was like after the trade deadline, kind of just thrown out there like we had so much talent and um we relied on our talent so much that um it took us that far but then when we ran into a Denver team like you said we got swept because they were so structured and so systemed um and I felt like it was hard for us to get to that level of even just a system because we didn't have the time like though they, they were all together basically the whole year you know they played, you know, 82 games before the pre or for the postseason, um, being able to figure out, you know, a lot of things in that span of time. Um, but with us, uh, it was completely different. So I think, you know, especially now and then training camp coming up, us being able to have the opportunity to, you know, grow that and grow, um, you know, in just situations to where like in the fourth, if we, you know, have a couple um, bad possessions that we know exactly what we're going to get to because that's what Denver would do. They would have a couple bad possessions and then they knew exactly what they was going to get to in uh, in the fourth quarter. So just those little things, having this whole time to, you know, learn that and do that, like I think that'll elevate us to another level. And like you said, we brought in, you know, uh, a lot of guys that are super talented. Um, you know, I would argue we probably have the most talented roster in the league um, you know, from top to bottom, uh, you know, getting, you know, Christian Wood um, on a minimum, you know, Gabe coming from a finals appearance. Uh, you know, we have a lot of guys that um, are super talented. And like I said, just getting this time to, you know, really build a foundation with one another is going to help us a lot. I think also people who have watched LeBron for 20 years, were surprised at points in the playoffs at how much of the ball handling he let 
other people do. Like I'll I'll go stand on the wing and he he cut for some baskets and this and that. Austin, you run the show. Even D'Lo sometimes in early yeah. in games, you run the show. There was the Lonnie Walker game against Golden State where he was just like, Lonnie, you're cooking. But you were the main guy that got that level of trust and level of responsibility. When did you know that LeBron trusted you to do that? Was there a conversation you had in the regular season? Was there a regular season game? Was there a practice where it was communicated to you like, hey, like, if you're feeling it or my foot's not good or whatever, like you're, you're going to, you're going to have it even on the biggest stages. I'm going to let you cook. Uh, there was no real conversation like off the court or anything. Um, I always knew that we, from day one, we connected on that IQ level, just thinking the game differently than other people do. Um, but the one that, that stood out to me, it was even, it was in the playoffs was game one against uh against Memphis um, when I had to really go for a quarter. I struggled the first half. I think I was two for seven and a half uh, from the field and then got it going in the fourth. And I remember I got, I think I got two buckets in a row and someone, I think Bain might have shot a, uh, a wing three on the right side and um, it come off. And I don't, I, I don't know if D'Lo got the rebound or who got, or Vando got the rebound, but I was on the left side and I just went to run the floor um they outlet it to Braun and this was this was right before I hit the three I think and me going to run the floor uh I hear Braun yelling at me like AR come back like and he just tosses me the ball and I'm like oh <laughs> like <laughs> I have the the greatest uh you know in my opinion the greatest player ever you know I don't want to say deferring to me in this moment but like giving me the ball like okay you got something going go go do something because he knows, you know, me, I don't care about, like, if I go score, if I may have a get a play for someone else, like, he knows I just want to win. Um, but when that happened, obviously in my brain, like, there's – it probably should have went somewhere else, but the whole time I was just sitting there thinking, like, I can't screw this. Like, I got to make something good happen. Like, I don't care if it's a missed shot, whatever. We get a good shot, whatever. But I something's good has got to happen. I can't turn it over. can't shoot a bad shot. But – uh, I think I come down and hit the three, and after that, same thing, gave me the ball again. And from that point forward, like, I could tell that the the trust level was even more than what I knew it was at that point. Now, that's the I'm him game. Yeah. It will go down in history as the I'm him game. <laughs> um, I want to know, aftermath of that game, I was talking to your agents, Aaron and Reggie, you mentioned before said his phone was going so crazy. Like you, you almost literally just couldn't look at your phone. You couldn't digest the amount of incoming messages, tweets, whatever. It was just like a slot. I'm picturing like a slot machine. That's just going crazy like that. Um, what, what is that? What is that night? I'll start with this one with the team. What is that locker room and that night like for you? Cause that's game one. So you're staying in Memphis. Is there, is there a big dinner? Do you just go back to your hotel room? What's the funniest thing somebody said to you in the locker room or the coolest thing somebody said to you in the locker room? Yeah, no, like you said, I just remember going in the locker room. I'm ice or right before I ice, obviously I was the last person in the locker room and did on court media or whatever. And as soon as I, I walk in the locker room, Brown was walking around dapping everybody up and he just looked at me and gave me a big hug. Like I was like, Oh, like obviously this one's coming, but uh, he gives me a big hug and then I go to ice and whatever. And like you said, like there's still probably people that I really like, like my close friends that 
I didn't respond to that night because I literally probably never seen their message uh, just because like I've had the same number since I was in high school. Um, you know, everybody has my number basically. So all my high school friends were hitting me up throughout college. All those guys were hitting me up. Um, but I just remembered it was, wasn't more so like that, that night, but the next morning uh, or midday we had film and Phil Handy was just like, he obviously congratulated me uh, for the, you know, game that I had, but then was just like, looked around and was just like, I just want to, you know, basically say to Bron and AD, like, I haven't seen y'all do that in a while. Like, I haven't seen y'all put y'all's trust in another player like that, um, especially in this big time moment. And, um, you know, I just wanted to tip my hat to y'all. And then that was another point where I was just like, oh, like, everything had kind of sunk in at that point. And, you know, I, I, I just, after the game, I just went and ate with my, my, uh, with my mom, my family. Um, we had a good dinner, whatever, but, uh, yeah, no, it was just, it was one of those moments after the fact where everything kind of set in that I was just like, oh, like this really happened. Like, you know, I was kind of riding that high, like it was a dream, whatever. But, um, those were the things that really stood out. Uh, sometimes when a thing like that happens, you get a million messages, you go through them over the next week or so, whatever, not that this has happened to me, but I've heard stories like this before. And you come across a message that's like, I don't even know this person. I don't know how this person got my number, but I'm just making up a name. Like somehow Greg Popovich texted me or somehow Shaq texted me. And I didn't even see it until the week after. Was there a message or a person like that? I think, there was, I don't think there was a text like that. I think Dame had tweeted something um, along the lines just of me, um, you know, taking over the game basically. And that was one because I don't know him. But I don't really know anybody in the league, to be honest, uh, other than my teammates. Um, but that was the one I think that was probably the first one I seen when I, I pulled up social media. That was it was pretty cool. Um, Warrior series. You hit a half-court shot in the deciding game at the buzzer of halftime. Um, I've been told that there are people in your life that discourage you at times from doing the heaves because it hurts your field goal percentage and that you insist on doing it. Yeah. And I'm going to just say that I think the basketball gods appreciate that and rewarded you in that moment. But is that true that you've been maybe playfully like, yo, I know you, that's like you're shooting 38% for three. It could be 40 if you stop shooting the heaves, but you keep shooting them. Yeah, no, that's, it's a real thing. And you have guys in the NBA that won't shoot them just for that, you know, reasoning. But I have this weird ultra confidence that I'm going to make it every time. Um, realistically, I'm not like, and obviously I probably made, I think I made two of those all year. Not, I didn't make it. I don't think it was at half, but a little bit across half, but um, yeah, no, I think, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to, you know, help your team, um, f forget the numbers, forget the percentages. Like you can tell, like you can go back, like if you're having a negotiation about a contract, like, Sure, it looks good if you shot 38, but or 40 over 38. But like you could go back and explain those 25 heaves that you had and be like, oh, it could be 40 or whatever. Uh, but I think it just shows that 
you care about winning more than numbers and percentages and stuff like that. But I definitely, there are some people in my, in my uh, circle that are like, yeah, you could shoot less of those. Did you, did you want to guard Steph more in that series? Or did you think you were going to guard Steph more? Going into the series, I previewed it and I thought, I know Vando's real versatile, but I thought you were going to get the primary matchup on Steph and I was wrong. Were you like, because that is, there's no matchup like that in the NBA, nothing like it. Not even Dame is like that moving around. Were you, were you trying to like prime yourself for the challenge of it? Uh, yeah. I mean, anytime you have a guy like that, like you basically, the whole team is trying to figure out a way to, you know, stop him. And, uh, you know, if that was the, you know, assignment for me, I would have went, you know, tried to do that. Uh, obviously it's a hard task, but I think um, after game two, I think I started guarding him more because um, Dennis got in foul trouble a little bit here and there. Uh, we ended up moving Vando. Um, but one thing we really did really good that series was our coaches did a great job with adjustments. And anytime Kerr adjusted, we adjusted to their adjustments. So there was – we had probably – 15 different coverages that we did in that series alone, um, just adjusting to all their adjustments. But anytime I can go, um, you know, take on that challenge, you know, I, I'm a competitor and I, I like that. I'm glad you said that because Darvin Ham, I think people didn't know what to make of him as a head coach. And they, they talk about his demeanor and holding the locker room together. And you're sitting here talking about like the X's and O's and the back and forth, like you, as, as a high IQ guy, like you mentioned, you and Braun connected that way. It sounds like you came out of the playoffs thinking like, oh, this guy, this coach is ready. Like we can win four playoff series with him. He can go toe-to-toe with Spo or whoever, Steve Kerr, whoever the, the coaches are that are known as like the adjustment guys. For sure. No, there was uh, – it was one thing that I was very like um, – I was very satisfied with. Even in the Denver series, I feel like we did – literally everything that we could do like it wasn't a lack of trying stuff or a lack of adjustments or uh i feel like we did the right stuff for the most part uh i feel like we you know could have started the series a little bigger um could have started vando over dennis but you say that and then you turn around and you had so much success in the golden state series starting dennis that um, if you go from that and it don't work, then people are like, oh, well, why didn't you stick with that? So I understood the the reasoning of that. Um, but, I mean, we ended up trying everything. It just Denver was good. They're very good. And the big fella is very, very good. Um, Problem. Yeah. So, oh, speaking of defense, um, there was there was one game, one and a half maybe in Team USA's run. It was Lithuania. Yeah. Where I'm forgetting which player it was specifically wasn't a wasn't a big center though wasn't like a size mismatch uh, took you guard. into the huh he was a point guard he played with took, my brother. yeah took you into the weight room a little bit beat you up in the post scored some baskets on you talked a whole lot of junk right to your face now your your brother knows him and I know he tweeted about him too saying nice win you know hopefully there's a rematch um, but I I can tell you. There was there were little burblings around the NBA of, oh, the blueprint's out now. Like the blueprint's out. We spotted a weakness. Uh, what say you to that? Uh, I mean, if you go back and look at it, um, and I think if you have 
you know, any type of basketball IQ. Uh, we were trying to guard everything one-on-one. Like, we didn't want to show – we didn't want to give up threes, to be honest. Uh, so, from day one of the USA stuff, we were basically – I don't want to say you was on an island, but more so than not, you were on an island. And I think he – the two times he scored on me in the post, both and ones, obviously. Uh, I think he took seven dribbles and six dribbles. Um, and that's just like I me personally, I could go, I think I could go post up Braun right now. And if I get six dribbles, I'm not gonna say I'm gonna score, but I could get to probably wherever I wanted to go. Um I feel like you could say blueprints out, but like with the Lakers and us having a foundation defensively like I know where my help's coming from like I play that game like I'm not the most athletic guy in the world like I ain't the quickest guy in the world but like when I know our system and how where the help's coming from you know obviously having AD helps a lot but just knowing those little things like where the help's gonna be you know rotations and stuff like that um it helps me. And, you know, he had some success in the post and uh, you tip your hat to him. Speaking of Lakers, I believe you had your LeBron does the annual sort of get together mini camp with the team. I believe that was just like a few days ago. I don't remember somewhere in the West Coast. Yep. Uh, how did it go? How does everybody look? Did every was the attendance 100 percent? Were the coaches there? Like, How does that thing work? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, obviously Bron puts it on. Um, we went down to San Diego. And we we got down Thursday, had a dinner Thursday night, and then Friday, Saturday was, you know, workouts, practice, not really practice, but uh, just getting in the gym, doing a lot of 5-on-0 stuff, running over, you know, basically foundation stuff. Uh, There's a little bit of playing here and there, but uh, not much. Coaches are there, but it's basically player ran. Um, It was great. You know, everybody, it was 100% attendance. Everybody was there. Um, everybody was active and, you know, everybody looked good. You know, we did a lot of, uh, you know, shooting competition stuff. Um, you know, AD shooting the ball really well, um, right now. And, you know, it's something that I've tried to get him to do more is, is shoot it. Um, cause if he, if he does that, you know, at a very decent level, which he can, cause in you know, a bubble year, he shot it really well. Um, you know, literally you can't guard him, but just the whole weekend, it was good. It was, we had dinners and stuff and it was really just an opportunity for everybody to, you know, learn one another and get closer. Yeah. The, what happened to Anthony Davis's jump shot is like one of the biggest mysteries in the NBA. It's never like we talked about it on the show last week and how I was defending AD for the bulk of the playoffs because every every kind of talking head show that there is, it just points, points, points. And yeah, like he had a 38-point game and then a 15-point game. And I kept saying like, this guy's the best defensive player in the playoffs. And like, I don't think it's even close. No. Um, we, we should at least like mention that side of the ball. Sure. But the consistency in scoring, like that was a real thing. And I think part of it is just like the four points he's not getting on pick and pop jumpers anymore. Like So you you see a path to just recovering those like four to six points, whatever it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, he'll shoot the ball a lot better this year, and I think he'll take have more attempts. Um, but also to speak on the, you know, like you said, he had 38, and then he had 15. But, like, 
like you said, defensively, he I mean, obviously he's the best, you know, defensive player I've ever played with, but like just knowing that he's back there, like in the playoffs, especially like you can be so much more aggressive. And like, even though, even if he don't block shots, he's going to alter the shot. And I remember my first training camp, I never had a problem getting by whoever was guarding me, but like, I never was on the starting team. So AD was always down there and I'd get to the lane. I'd be like, Oh, I got a layup. And I go up for a layup and I'd just be lost. Like I'd just turn it over. Cause I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but also, like, the, the offensive side of all that, like, we have so much talent. And obviously, with Bron, um, D'Lo, Ruby was playing really well. I was playing really well. Like, AD's not a selfish guy at all. Like, he wants to win. So, those nights where he, you know, scored mid, you know, teens, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, whatever it was, you know, somebody else probably had it going. And it's not like he's going to the bench, you know, bickering about, um touches and stuff like that uh just because you know someone else is having success he don't like he don't care about that like he just wants to win i'm gonna ask you a very important question and i want you to answer it honestly it's gonna be open-ended who is the best golfer among nba players me you know who would be the, the consensus answer to this among among fans who watch highlights and stuff for sure. I know. Steph. Yeah. We got to make this happen. Like Steph's always doing made for TV golf events. Can you get, can you, this yeah. is, I, as far as I'm concerned, you just issued an open challenge. <laughs> hey, I, I'm down to play golf whenever, wherever against anybody. I, I mean, I'm, I love golf so much that, um, I'll go play Tiger. Um, obviously I don't have any expectation of winning that one, but, um you just made it you just pitched the television show right there you just like that's an espn show maybe on espn no tiger i was gonna say espn 2 espn 1 would would carry that no for sure um no but i would i would love to play against steph i i actually seen him out on the golf course between between four and five game four and five in the playoffs when me when we landed me and d went out uh in san fran and um, we were checking in, about to go out, and they were like, "Oh, y'all probably, y'all probably see somebody out there, y'all know." And we were walking. I think it was the whole four or five. He was coming. I think he was coming down the um, probably like twelve or something out there. He come and said, "What's up?" And yeah, no, I've, I've seen him play golf many a times. He's, he's, a, he's a good golfer. I, I wanted to, I wanted to let him know that, you know, when him and uh, when him and Clay got beat by. Um, you know, Pat and uh, Trav that, you know, if he needed a little help, he could, he could let me know, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything about Clay. Clay just, you know, the weight wasn't carried. Wow. I, I like this. Um, someone introduced me to uh, Hillbilly Bogey, which I did not know about. Hillbilly Kobe was one of your original nicknames. You have a lot of nicknames. Your nickname, you ha- you're like the, 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 you have many more nicknames in years in the NBA. Um, but Hillbilly Bogey, I'm not on TikTok. I don't know what's going on on TikTok. I don't know what the kids are doing. But this is now a thing. You're making this a thing. It's you and your buddy Trent from Arkansas. What is what is this? Uh, so it's basically like, I mean, like I said, I love golf. He loves golf. Um, and as much as golf we play, like we was like, why not try to do something with golf? Like 
there's a um there's a group called good good golf uh, they basically travel around, play all different sizes, types of courses and just, you know, basically document it all. They get a lot of guys, um, you know, athletes, probably, um, actors, actress, act, actresses. Yeah. Um, on the channel and, uh, just have fun. Um, so that's kind of the, the path that we're going, um, just being in LA, having, you know, basically unlimited, uh, you know, opportunity to, you know, play, you know, the best courses out here. And then obviously being a Laker, having the connections um, and being able to, you know, get, you know, golfers in general, uh, like PGA Tour guys, you know, out to come play and uh, just mess around and have fun, to be honest. Uh, that's really the main thing. But um, you could do a lot of stuff with it right now. We're basically just playing one-on-one, -on -one, you know, me versus him. But, you could do, you know, they do a lot of like four on four, like scrambles and stuff like that. So um, we've kind of started taking it a lot more serious. At first of the summer, it was kind of just a joke. Uh, we didn't really think we were going to do anything with it. But uh, Bleacher Report actually posted it the other day. And um, someone was like, I've, I've discovered, you know, Austin Reeves' uh, golf TikTok. And it kind of it blew up a little bit. And, um, you know, there are people who don't think it's you, who or at least initially didn't think it was you. Yeah, it's me. Um, <laughs> I don't. I basically show up and play golf. My my best friend Trent, he does all the editing and stuff. And you know, to be honest, he never he never did anything like editing in the first place. He's just literally learning on the fly. We actually bought a drone a couple of days ago, and we were flying flying it around the golf course this morning. So uh, we're having a lot of fun with fun with it. What is you mentioned the Lakers and what life is like as a Laker and a breakout Laker personality? You felt it in Manila for sure. Um, what is the strangest, goofiest marketing opportunity that you have been presented with that you were either like, I that's I, that's too weird, I can't do that, or just like something where you're like I don't even understand what this is because there's always some weird stuff. Yeah. Um... I will say my my uh, my agency does a good job of not bringing that stuff to me, and I don't check. I don't look at my DMs. I I don't scroll and look at you know what everybody's saying to me. Um, my first year we did we actually did an underwear deal, um, which ended you know I think like a year and a half ago or whatever. But uh, the one now it's a Drake Law Firm and. Uh, it's Lemon Law, and they literally have billboards of me all over L.A. Like I was driving this morning and I looked up and it's a big billboard. And it, they it, across the big front of it is a picture of me and it says Lemon Daddy. And so that's probably the one that I get the most, um, you know, feedback from because everybody sees it. And obviously it's a it's a funny name, uh, but is a good partnership and you know like we like what they're doing lemon daddy yeah, yeah i was not aware of that until i started googling <laughs> around uh, for, for, sure. answers, for answers um answers to this question you are from a tiny town in arkansas and i was reading some of the older profiles of you first of all i did i did was not aware before i started really diving in like you were putting up 50 73 in one game like the high school scoring was ridiculous but i was reading my my buddy dan wakey wrote a profile of you for the la times you said, and it's, you said your buddy Dan. 
Yeah. Does that make you want to cancel the podcast? I I was gonna say yes, but I I'll give Dan his props. I love Dan. Dan's a great dude. He his he he uh Dan is a great dude. He's always a fun. He's always got a like. He just makes your mood better, sure. and he cares about the right stuff in the job. Like he cares about covering the team the right way. He knows what the good stories are. He knows how to do it. Sure. Um, and the story opens with you remembering what I would describe as a cow stampede on your family farm cows. It's described in the story as cows, all the cows, some of the cows running in a circle around you, you other family members and, and dogs or something like, is that a real thing? Oh, I, I think what was, I think what happened was, is I think we were talking about a story one time that the cows chased me and my friends all the way home. So like the, (laughs) There were some are not I don't want to say neighbors because neighbors are actually neighbors here. Our neighbors are like maybe like a mile down the road. Um, but they had some dogs that would um that our cows didn't like. And we had a dog that they didn't mind, but they started hating cow or they started hating dogs for some reason. So we were out on the farm, you know, I think we went fishing actually, and uh, we had one of our dogs with us and the, literally like a whole group of cows literally just started chasing us. So we had to run all the way back to the house. Um, I think it was me, it was me and a couple of my friends. Um, that was a long time ago though. I, I mean, ballpark a number of cows for me. Cause I, I grew up in Connecticut in New York, man. I don't know how many cows are hanging out in where you are. <laughs> uh, that were chasing us. It was probably somewhere around like 30, 35. Um, it's a lot of cows. Yeah, I mean, we had at the time we probably had like 150 uh, cows at that time, but only like 30 or 35 were chasing us. And the strategy is get indoors, outrun them, and get indoors. Like, what's the at that, I, time, at that time? Yeah, I've never I never had that happen though, and I've I've grew up around cow. I've grew up around all animals, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, but yeah, that's the first thing that popped into my mind. I was like, I'm young. I'm I, I play a lot of sports, so I'm gonna just run until they stop chasing me. Um, I was told to ask you, and you're gonna be able to figure this out who this is. Um, ask Austin about the quote body sized dense or holes. I don't know if it was holes or dense. The body sized dense in our basement wall. What this, this this is your brother, obviously. Uh, yeah. Well, he could have come from my mom could have said something like that, too. But um, body yeah. sized was alarming to me. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I think a couple. So it was growing up. It was always me, one of my really good friends, my brother and his really good friends. Uh, me and my friend were the same age. My brother and his brother were the same age. So. Uh, it was two sets of brothers and we were always together. And I think that we might've had like a Super Bowl party and a couple older kids, <laughs> a couple older kids started messing with us and, you know, we always had each other's back. And I think, I can't remember exactly how the kid got, I don't know. I think you want to say he got kicked into the wall, <laughs> but uh, a little, I don't want to call it a fight, but you know, something broke out and uh, I want to say someone basically drop kicked him into the wall and obviously we got in trouble for that one mom come down the next day we tried to hide it it didn't work i also was told to ask about dents in your mom's car yeah that's uh that wasn't me that was my friend (laughs) with a golf ball yeah we used to 
like throwing and throw, hitting oh, hitting a golf ball, dude, wayward shots. Yeah, we were so how the house was set up. I don't know whose land it was, but we would hit the balls across the road, and um, one of my friends like topped one out there, and he was he ran out to get it and was just gonna like chip it back, and ended up blading it. And it went straight right. And I could see it the whole time. Mom, I think, just bought her Escalade. And I just seen it the whole time. It was just ba- bounce, bounce up the driveway. And I was just like, obviously, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. She can't get mad at him. So uh, I bit the bullet for a while. And then I finally looked at her and was just like, I didn't do that. Like, <laughs> please leave me alone. Um, you play cards on the on team on the team flights, right? Yeah. What do you play? Bu-ray. Uh, it, I know Bu-ray. Uh Who 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 do you play with? Like who's who's the table? Who and who's I mean who who's good good enough that they scare you? And who who do you feel like doesn't know that they're maybe the sucker at the table, but they're the sucker at the table? Oh <laughs> uh, wow, you're gonna have me throwing names out. Oh, uh, so last year we played me, D'Lo, um, Winion, and whoever the fourth would be. It didn't matter. Uh, who it was it was uh Shaq at the end of the year when he uh signed who at max would play with us a little bit here and there um but D'Lo is the one that he I don't know how but he stayed winning um I don't (laughs) that's my boy but he may I had to pay him a couple dollars here and there but um I think man I'm not even gonna say anybody anybody was bad at the game maybe no. it's you no 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 I, I i have my fair share of good days um a couple more random ones and i'll let you go i was reading a story by a uh, marin fader at the ringer wrote a profile of you and the russ frank vogel era feels like so long ago given what you accomplished last year but you had and obviously look trade there's no there's no way to get past it trading rust opened the door for you to have a bigger role and the I can say it you don't have to the fit was just better the fit with LeBron and AD was better but there's a story in there about a game against Sacramento I think where you shoot one of eight from three and you're in the locker room just beating yourself up and Russ comes up to you and say hey man keep shooting or I like that you I like that you took the shots yeah. And I think in the story, it's like you, you were you kind of thought maybe he was being sarcastic. And, yeah. and so so to, because the, Russ has become such a the, the discourse around Russ is just is so all over the place and so big and noisy that I think these teammate moments, even even when it's not working on a broader scale, kind of get lost. So t- tell that story if you could. It was preseason, actually. We were in Sacramento and. I can't remember if we ended up winning the game or not. Um, I want to say we got beat. They they ended up not playing like Russ, Braun, AD. They ended up not playing the last probably like three or four minutes. Uh, we lost by like six or seven. Um, and like I said, I went one for eight from three. And I'm sitting in the locker room afterwards, you know, obviously pissed off at myself because, you know, I hold myself to a standard and um, – you know, those were opportunities that I felt like I needed to play well because, you know, I didn't know what my opportunity was going to be going forward. So um, I remember sitting there and Russ come up to me and was like, great game. Or he said something like that. And I kind of just looked up at him like, what? Like, I didn't play bad. I didn't shoot it well. He was like, no, he said something like, way to shoot it. 
And I just looked at him like he was crazy. Like I was like, is this, is he being an asshole? And he just kept talking to me. He was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. And I was like, I, I, shot, I was one for, I literally finally looked at him. I was like, bro, I was one for eight. He was like, I don't care. You shot it. Like, I don't care if you go one for eight, six for eight, oh for eight. He was like, as long as you shoot it, he was like, you ain't going to hear anything from me. And I was just like, oh, okay. Like, like you said, the, the misconception of Russ as a teammate um, is crazy. Uh, I feel like everybody that he's played with that's come out and publicly said something afterwards, it's all been good. And as a person, you can't get much better than Russ. What was it? You come into the league undrafted by choice. I mean, your agents and you discourage people from drafting you two way contract, get called up to the Lakers. And you're called up on this team of just <laughs> massive superstars that you've grown up watching. And, you know, LeBron and Russ are, in their own ways, massive personalities, alpha personalities in different ways. Was it difficult, weird, watching that all from your perspective and, and in particular just kind of watching it not work? Yeah, it was. Um I've said it many a times and it's just, it, it was just not a good fit. Like you said, it, it was, I don't know, me and Bronze talked about it and Bron was just like before, you know, that year, like we were last in the league in transition points and, you know, it all made, made it make sense. And under, I could understand where it was coming from, but it just didn't ever work. Like, um, we had to have sacrifice from not even just those two, but like we had guys, we had Dwight, we had Trevor Reza, we had, you know, uh, DJ. Um, I remember our, uh, my first game, Mellow. I remember I looked at a picture someone sent me after my first game that I played, which was the second game of the year. And it was me, Russ, Mellow, AD, and Braun. And I was just sitting there like, why the hell am I in the game? <laughs> but it was just watching it all kind of just go downhill was it was interesting to me just because I was sitting back like I was just sitting there thinking like how could we not have this happen like how could we have figured it out and I've thought I still think about it and I just don't think that there was really I don't think that there was a way with that roster like I really don't I feel like because for the most part at the first of the year, I feel like everybody sort of sacrificed and got less for the better, but it just never worked out. Last question. Um, you are going into your third year, um, have achieved a lot, proved yourself in the playoffs. I don't know what your playoff points per game was, but it was higher than anyone other than you probably could have reasonably expected. Just played for Team USA. I get the sense from talking to people around the Lakers and around you that they and you think there's another level to get to. And it's not like a smidgen above where you are now that there's a big leap still to take. Do you have what what does that I don't know if you've set goals in your mind, like being an all star, um, whatever it is, like what what does that look like for this season? Like what kind of stuff do you think about? First of all, I just want to win a championship. Um, that just having that playoff success last year, 
going to the Western Conference Finals. Like, I looked at Braun, I've told this many times, but I looked at Braun after, I think it was game four of the Memphis series, and I was just like, this this might be the most fun I've ever had playing basketball. And he looked at me and was just like, just wait. Like, it just gets better. And, like, as that was – I mean, that was the first series. And, like, series by series, like, it just got better and better. Obviously, we got our ass whooped. But um, I could see – like, I could get the taste of what the feel of, you know, getting to the championship and, like, winning a ch- – like, I could – I you could kind of feel, like, what it would be like. So, for me, that's number one. And that will always be number one. But personally, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't – I don't ever like really setting goals just because you can not achieve your goals, but also do what's necessary for the team. And you're sitting there looking like, Oh, well, I didn't average 14 instead of 17 or 18 or whatever your goal might be. But um, for me, it's really just about playing the game the right way. And I feel like, you know, it's really worked from um, day one for me. Like I keep getting a little more um, opportunity to do more. And I feel like going into this season, it's going to be, you know, even more of that. Uh, Me and Darvin's talked about that multiple times about um, just having more responsibility and, you know, being on the ball a little more and um, creating for others. So, yeah, I think, you know, I can do what I did last year and more. I, I'm excited to watch them. I I think the Lakers are. I think you guys are probably a little better than what is national consensus right now. I I think you guys are a legit contender. I look forward to watching you because I I said it many times last season on the air, various places. Like we can sit here and parse the trade and this guy doing this and that guy doing that. The biggest the biggest thing the Lakers figured out last season, and I'm just quoting myself. I'm not doing this because you're here. Is that Austin Reeves is good. And Austin Reeves became a legit third guy with LeBron and AD. And I'm excited to watch where it goes. You've given us a lot of time. Really appreciate it. Um, When I'm out in LA, I'll I'll say hello. But congratulations on everything. Congratulations on the new contract. Um, And and we'll see what you do next season. Austin Reeves, everybody. Sounds good. Appreciate y'all for having me. All right, after Austin Reeves and the Lakers, it feels fitting to talk about the team that beat the Lakers, the defending NBA champion, Denver Nuggets. And I've been thinking a lot about the Nuggets recently because Austin Reeves was straight up envious of their continuity, their collective skill, their chemistry. And as we wait for the Damian Lillard trade to come down, which may happen this week, may not happen this week, may happen today, who knows? Um... That and the Harden drama, the contrast with the Nuggets who are dancing in Serbia, relaxing. (laughs) Their biggest worry is how to replace Brucey B, who left for a boatload of money in Indiana, and less so how to replace Jeff Green, who I think is is replaceable. And not only that, as we bring on Adam Morris from DNVR, just the best crew covering the Nuggets, visited their bar in Denver, which was hopping the entire time. The playoffs are going on. You know, part of the reason Austin Reeves is so envious is, is not just the continuity. It's like the, the Nuggets are like this platonic ideal of a championship team. All their core players are more or less the same age or same age range. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about 
what does Toronto look like if they acquire Dame? And how, assuming Ananobi goes out in the deal, how they'd have Dame at 33, Siakam at 29, Barnes at 21 or 22, and how that feels unusual. And if you look back in NBA history, there are teams with that kind of age spread between their first, second, and third best players. Teams that get big contributions from a guy in a rookie deal. But Denver, Denver's just got none of that. No age questions, no drama questions. Adam Morris, have you just... Last summer, you went to Sombor and all around Serbia on a Jokic pilgrimage. They won the championship. Jokic's finals MVP. I think like borderline undisputed best player in the NBA right now. Is it just... Has it just been like the Broncos stink? They just gave up 70 <laughs> points. That's Has true. it just been like a three month celebration in Denver? Have people forgotten about the Nuggets? Is Nuggets fever still going on? Well, at, we laugh all the time over at DNVR, our, our Nuggets crew, about how everything went right. You know, you, you, we checked every box. You get, you get every, it wasn't just the championship, it was all the little narrative wins you got along the way um, that, that were so much fun. You know, defense in the playoffs and, could they go against this guy or that guy? Or they better not face the Lakers because if they face the Lakers, it's over. So every little narrative win that or narrative opportunity that presented itself, the Nuggets kind of answered. So it was it's a lot of fun. Um, I think the Broncos have helped keep the Nuggets vibe alive. And I think people are are already ready earlier than usual here in Denver to turn their attention back to the Nuggets. To review, the Nuggets were the number one seed in the West despite kind of frittering away the last month or so of the season, and Jokic frittered away the MVP potentially. Maybe that was wrong still. Maybe that was the wrong decision, but it's done. Yeah. (laughs) They, in the regular season, ranked fifth in offense, 117 points per 100 possessions, 15th in defense, 113.5. In the playoffs, they went 16-4, and just blitzkrieged everybody. 118 points per 100 possessions, which would have led the league by a a little bit. And 110 points allowed per 100 possessions, which would have tied Cleveland for number one in the entire NBA in the regular season. They lost the two key contributors we mentioned. And I would posit that Bruce Brown is not just a sixth man. He was like an extra starter sometimes a closer, a guy who could more or less play in any iteration of the Nuggets core groups. Jeff Green, I'm not worried too much about, although it does bring the backup power forward spot into some question. The Nuggets have been a little reticent for a good reason, I think, at least defensively, to play MPJ as the standalone straight up for um, the second biggest defender, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. But in their place comes Christian Braun, Christian Brown, I'm still doing it, Adam. Christian Everybody Brown, is. ready for more minutes. Peyton Watson, ready for more minutes. Reggie Jackson, I've heard, has had a great summer. Team likes him. We'll see. I think Zeke Naji's got to play this year. And then you have this collection of rookies that they picked. Julian Strother, Hunter Tyson, and this picket kid who sounds like Andre Miller 2.0. I'm very excited for this guy, even though he might not play. Yeah. And... The Nuggets picked these guys, obviously, in the hopes that they would be ready at some point during the Jokic era. If you look at the depth and you say Christian Brown, Peyton Watson's kind of an unknown, has barely played. Reggie Jackson couldn't crack the rotation. Now they have a full season. Zeke Nagy couldn't really crack the rotation. 
This is the best starting five in basketball. We know that. Are you worried about the depth? <laughs> worried? I mean, every team has questions coming in. So I would say, yes, that's the story of the Nuggets. That's the the question they're going to have to answer going in. You know what the top six give you. The starting five, they start from a point of the best chemistry they've ever had. And they're a group that's had great chemistry for years with their core. But that starting five, I think, starts in October from a higher spot than than where they started last year by a significant margin. So I feel great about the starters. You just look at it and say, I think Denver needs to add one and a half players to their rotation this year that are unproven. Christian Brown's proven. You've got to add Peyton Watson, Zeke Naji, Reggie Jackson. One and a half of those guys has to hit uh, for you to have an eight-man playoff rotation. Zeke Naji... Um, you know, he's played minutes. He, he, You mentioned earlier Jeff Green. Jeff Green had a horrible on-off last year. When he was playing, Denver's bench unit was not good without Jokic last year. So as a regular season question, I just look at it and say, well, Denver ha- got probably an F for their bench last year and made it through the regular season. So I'm not worried about that as a regular season question. But to your point about Bruce, he wasn't just a bench player. He was a guy that gave you different configurations of your starters and, you know, they'll miss that. But but I think that they'll find a replacement throughout the course of the season. Yeah, I mean, he, he could handle it when Jamal was out. He could become he did become the point guard. That was one of the big yeah. changes they kind of made in the playoffs. Just all in on Bruce Brown, backup point guard. And then he can masquerade as like a rim runner, cutter, whatever, you know, almost playing like a big man as he did um, in Brooklyn. We should mention like Justin Holiday is floating around here as kind of a break in case of emergency flyer. He's fine. DeAndre Jordan. Who came in in the last game of the season in, in game in game five of the finals? The clincher yeah. is still here. Um, so, you know, you got some veterans that are that are ready. Um, you know, the interesting thing about Denver, who I think enters the season as the clear favorites, just everything we've, despite the depth. Now, nah, I wouldn't say clear favorites, but favorites. And yet, you look at, you know. It, famously, no one. We've had five different champions in the last five years, and if you just if you just sort of throw out the Durant Warriors teams, which were unfair, we have not had a team repeat since the Miami Heat in 2012-2013. So it's not that long, honestly, but it's like right. it's it's something. And if you wanted to just 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 nudge Denver a little bit, it's they didn't they faced. Minnesota, who played them kind of tough, but oh, was whatever, no. without Jaden McDaniel. No, no, I'm not giving the opposite. <laughs> the opposition was what it was, and they destroyed them. People, people want to see Jokic again against a team that can really, really stretch Denver's defense out. And Phoenix was the closest thing to that, but they did not play as a high-volume three-point shooting team. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They played as a huge mid-range shooting team. But I don't – I mean – is Phoenix is kind of similar as is now the Warriors would be like the ultimate test, but you know, they've actually got to get there. Like, is there a team that you look at as Denver figured some stuff out about itself defensively? We can talk about that. Is there a team? How do you feel about their defense basically? And is there a matchup that actually stresses you out? I mean, I think teams like Dallas is the other one that can play five out and has multiple ball handlers that, you know, you get Jokic on an island and then you switch and make it really hard to send the double teams. And that was one of the things that Denver did so well in the playoffs. Their double teams and rotations on the backside were just so on point. And they have a lot of length in that starting unit. So the scrambles, you know, they're scrambling with length and athleticism and and it really helps there. Can a team like Dallas make you pay for that by playing five out and having multiple shooters and ball handlers, you know, at every position? Can a Golden State, obviously, we know they've done this in the past. Are they able to do that uh, again this upcoming year? But to me, the question, Zach, is always, 
teams have to always make the choice. Are they going to go in on all offense against the Nuggets and try to outscore them? Are they going to try to put a defender on the on the court just to, okay, we got to be a little honest here. So let's just have one non-shooter. And to me, that's a really tough question because Denver scored against the best defenses of the playoffs last year, especially the best interior defenders. They scored at a historic rate. So if you say we're going to go all offense, you're almost certainly going to give up equal amounts of offense the other end. That's just how good Denver is at exploiting whatever weakness you have defensively. So for me, I do worry about those teams. But this idea of fighting fire with fire and just trying to outgun Denver, I just think Denver's always going to win in a gunfight. Well, and that's that's where Jokic has reached, is looking around the league and asking yourself, yeah, Lakers had a great offseason. Do they, did they find any remedy at all to Jokic? No. Dallas had a fun offseason. Anything there? What, are you going to put Grant Williams on him? Grant Williams is a little fire hydrant, but right, Jokic is right. not concerned about that. Golden State's got Draymond, but like the, my point is, there is just there isn't a remedy. Like Aiton for a hot second was the closest thing there was to like Jokic respected him, he gave him some trouble, and then that fell apart in this last season. That Jokic has reached the point now where both the whole league recognizes this thing goes through him, and somewhat more rarely, almost Shaq like, um, the whole league also at the same time realizes there's not really an answer right, to this. Right. Um, because we can't foul him like we could with Shaq. We can't double him. We can't let him shoot threes. Like, there's just nothing you can do. And so you just have to construct the best team you can. And 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 that's what the NBA is at the highest level. That's the territory this dude has reached. And I think, and this is why I push back on this idea of teams should just try to outgun them. I do think that there is front court combos that can cause Jokic problems. Not stop him, but that can cause him a little bit of difficulty. I mean, Draymond and Kevon Looney... If you're buying into the Warriors, it's that they can score and they have a front court that can defend that doesn't disrupt their offense. They know how to play with offense with those guys on the court. And that's the two-bodied approach that you kind of have to do. Everybody laughed about the Rui adjustment, including and especially Michael Malone. But the truth is that combination of the center is not guarding Jokic and you just put a strong-bodied player on him, that is the best way to try to attack Denver if you have the personnel. So Golden State, they probably have the personnel, although it's a little thin. Boston is the team to me that I look at and I go, okay, Robert Williams, Al Horford, and now Chris Stapps Porzingis. That's a three-headed monster that you always have a weak side rim protector and a good on-ball defender on Jokic at all times. That's a type of team that built a lineup that I think, okay, that makes sense for how you beat Denver. But those are the only teams, and I think, like what you're saying, a lot of teams said, we can't stop them, let's outgun them, and I just don't – I'm skeptical of that approach. Yeah, I think if you're going to beat Denver, to put it in statistical terms, you know, I mentioned Denver's like 118 points per 100 possession, 110 defensive rating. I think you got to build a team that's capable of over seven games with Denver, putting up like a 116 offense and holding Denver to right. a 115 defense. Like that's that's the only formula really to beat this team. There are a couple of things I want to ask you about their defense in the playoffs because I mentioned it skyrocketed up to like what would have been number one in the NBA for the regular season. If you look at the numbers... The biggest change really was they cut the number of shots that opponents got at the rim drastically, and all of those shots migrated to the mid-range. And I have two questions for you. And the basic general question is like, was that a real thing? And A, because it could have been a little bit opponent-specific with Phoenix and Miami being two of the heaviest mid-range teams in the league. And B, if you look at the numbers on cleaning the glass – 
that was like a league-wide trend from regular season to playoffs. Like a, a pretty strong drop-off in shots in the restricted area, replaced entirely by shots in the mid-range, which just makes me curious about what's going on there. But what what if if you're if you posit that Denver had something to do with that? And I think that's fair because they even they did depress Minnesota's numbers and the Lakers' numbers a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. What is it that they did? Well, I think this is the easy answer for me is that the Nuggets have always been a good defense in the clutch. In the last five minutes, they've all, their defense has looked like a championship caliber team. They get into the playoffs, even you know the playoffs. They always look this way. I think what it is is. It, and I love that you said all of the teams is not just the Nuggets. This is a league-wide trend. I think it is near impossible to play great defense for 82 games in the regular season. It takes so much athleticism and energy and effort. And the more athletic you are, maybe the less the margin between good effort and, and, and bad effort matters because you just can, you have speed, you have length, you can do those things. But if they're like Jokic. For him to be rotating at a playoff level intensity for 82 games is impossible and probably would wear him down by January or February. So I think he plays his spots. His numbers are always his rim protection numbers are always horrible because, look, am I going to sprint in February over here to try to contest and rotate and do all these things? No. Last five minutes, I will. And in the playoffs, OK, now it's time to do those things. And I've always seen throughout the regular season, they can do this in small stretches. They'll bring it in the playoffs. And that's exactly what happened. They also, and we talked about this, you and I, throughout the season, off and on, I, I thought the smartest thing Michael Malone did during the season was to begin to experiment a little bit more with how, with the Nuggets scheme. And yes, historically, Jokic has preferred to be up at the level of the screen on pick and rolls. He's probably best at that. He's got smart feet. He kicks the ball all the time, as you and I have debated. He gets incredible hands, and he does not want to sit back there as a sitting target for like an Anthony Edwards level freight right. train. But throughout the season and in the playoffs, the Nuggets kind of committed to, hey, against certain guys in certain teams, we are going to drop you back because we want to stay out of rotation. We don't want to have these guys right. crashing in off three-point shooters. I'm thinking like Mike Conley against the Wolves, Chris Paul against the Suns. We're willing to live with that. And then you sprinkle in you know, a like very rare zone, but like put Jokic on a wing that can't shoot. I thought that was really smart. Uh, do you, what, before I move on, like, what do you think of that kind of variety? Do you think they're going to lean further into that? Yeah, because it's a smart thing to do, right? If you have a pick and roll ball handler who can't really pull up and shoot, it does make sense maybe to to give a little bit more space there to play, you know, play the cat and mouse game. So yes, I think they'll always mix it up and and be smart. And they have a smart team. You mentioned that it's a veteran team. That's part of the benefit of they're not old, but they're not they're they're not young. They've been around the block. They bought a lot of guys that can read the court defensively and make adjustments on the fly. And by the way, you mentioned the rookies they brought in. They bring three of them, three of the oldest rookies in the draft. And I don't, I think that was by design. I think Denver sure. said, "Hey, we're not looking for stars. We're looking for guys that are maybe a year or two ahead of the curve." on team scheme and those types of things. So Denver had a veteran team last year. They have a veteran team this year. Um, and I think the, their intelligence is a big part of their scheme. The other big thing that helps their defense in the playoffs or that helped their defense in the playoffs. And it's the other stark contrast from regular season to playoffs. And something I think has a lot to do with Murray and Jokic just being incredible offensive players individually and in tandem. And a lot to do with Denver, just like, okay, time to dial in. Their turnover rate in the playoffs on offense dropped from 
23rd in the regular season, so eighth worst, to what would have been number one in the regular season for lowest turnover. They just stopped turning the ball over, which I think is a tribute to Jokic, particularly like the passes and organization, the ability he has to orchestrate every single possession without screwing up is probably unmatched in the NBA right now. And we tend to look at that as an offensive stat, but it's also a defensive stat because Denver is not a, Jokic is never going to be a great transition defender on his own. And they're not a great transition defensive team at times that that doesn't feel like an accident to me. And I don't think that's that number. I, I honestly had forgotten about it until I was prepping for this podcast. I was like, that is a pretty now they, they, they and they did it against teams that ranked 29th. That's the Lakers 11th, 5th and 3rd enforcing mm. turnovers on defense. So it's not like they played a bunch of teams that don't even try to force turnovers. That is a really really impressive stat. I just there's these little stats that come along when when you watch Jokic, they almost just make you laugh. And Jokic in the preseason will throw the craziest passes you've ever seen. In an All-Star game, he's not fit for there. You know, he's He's not making impacts. Regular season, it goes up a level, but not all the way. And then postseason, it just seems to be that he focuses in. What's his three-point percentage throughout his career, regular season, the playoffs? It always jumps five or six percent. I know it's sad. I'm going to sound like I'm, like I'm in a cult or something here, the way I talk about Jokic. But you watch him for long enough and you go, his regular season really is 40% less focused, 40% sloppier and whatever. And then you get to the postseason and all of those things just dial up. It's happened year over year over year for him. And I really, I think you're right. I attribute it to Jokic a lot. He focuses in on the playoffs. He gets significantly more in- intense and he makes significantly fewer mistakes. You live and breathe this team every day. What's the, what are a couple of the most interesting either rotation or schematic questions to you that you're going to be watching for? Well, one of the things Michael Malone always does that people probably don't realize is he plays the starting lineup more than anybody else in the NBA. Most teams blend their lineups a lot more and play their their five together fewer minutes. Denver doesn't do that. And as a result, the on-off numbers, people talk about, is Denver stat padding Jokic's on-off because the bench is always so bad? In part, yes. I don't think they're doing it to stat pad him. It's just the way they like to build the rotation. But this year with so many unknowns, namely Peyton Watson and Zeke Naji, and then if you just look at their top nine guys, the the, the number six through nine, you're going to go Christian Brown, Reggie Jackson, Peyton Watson, Zeke Naji. I don't know if that lineup works, and it probably doesn't. So does Denver have to, and Michael Malone have to completely change one of his core principles of this team and start staggering multiple players, which we know will work because we see it in the playoffs. Do you need to do that to make more coherent lineups? Players like Peyton Watson and Christian Brown both fit really well with Jokic. But if you do the rotations you used to do, those guys probably won't play a lot of minutes with Jokic. So that's one of the things is, is there a a, a characteristical trait of Michael Malone that he's going to have to change this year? I think the backup big spots linked to that are are very interesting because, you know, Aaron Gordon, when he went out of the game, Jeff Green was the backup for to spare Michael Porter Jr. That kind of responsibility. Jeff Green's gone. Um, There is no sort of clean in-house proven answer. I think Watson can slide to the four. I know the team thinks Tyson, the kid they drafted, can slide to the four. We'll see how much the rookies play. I think we could see like a little Christian Brown Super small ball at the four. I don't know how that would actually work. Um, can we see Zeke Naji at the four playing alongside Jokic and even alongside DJ? Or is he going to be a strict backup five? I've always had a soft spot for Zeke Naji. It's kind of like now or never for the Zeke Naji Denver Nuggets experience. 
I think Michael Malone just loves his best punch to play as many minutes as possible. And Aaron Gordon next to Jokic at the four is your best punch by a lot. So I just wonder how how much Malone would go to that, even though I think, look, I think everybody plays with Jokic well. So Zeke Nagy would be no different on that. He shoots the three. He defends really well. The one thing I'll say about Zeke Nagy, though, is that his best trait, in my opinion, is that he can switch and he allows your defense to play switch. So if you played him with Jokic, well, you don't want to switch Jokic. So that takes away his best defensive quality. And that's one reason that I think he's probably more an opposite Jokic player. He's going to be a backup five. He walks in as a backup five, you think? I think um, so. I, I guess kind of what I'm really asking you for in all of these questions is there's a sense that the Nuggets, at least at the top of the rotation, are more or less a finished product. And the guy that's maybe most interesting on their team to me is Michael Porter Jr. He just turned 25 years old. He's obviously missed a ton of time in the NBA. So in NBA years, he's even younger than that or less experienced than that. You and I have talked about his his defense, I think, was improving under the radar for a long time, reaching a point of at least off the ball, decent. On the ball, it can get a little dicey at times. And his rim protection, his size, his rebounding, that's a real, that's a real thing. In the playoffs and toward the end of last season, we saw a little more off-the-dribble stuff. He's never been a back-down guy because he can't bend over enough yeah. to do it, but, but using his size in more creative ways, making the next play, pump, go, drive, pass, um, and even just we saw in the finals, like kind of grinding through a shooting slump and still finding ways to impact the game. What do you is, is there another like if there is another level for him on this team alongside the two guys we know we're going to run the show offensively? What is that? What does that look like? Yeah, it's such a great question because I think Michael Porter is more talented offensively than the role he accepts for the Nuggets. And, and has been, but at the same time, Denver doesn't need it. And I just, every year I go through and work with my, my buddy ha half court hoops and put together the nuggets playbook. We try to break down every play that they run and you go through it and you see, he really is almost in the identical role as KCP on offense, which is to say he's just a spacer. Denver doesn't use him in a lot of dynamic ways. They don't run a lot of plays that even get him on the elbow. They don't get him a lot of touches, even just to kind of face up. It's really, he's the option to space the floor if the defense collapses. And I always wonder, should Denver try to incorporate him more into the offense? When you watch the playoffs, it so clearly wasn't needed that they needed another body, that they needed another option offensively. They had enough through the Murray Jokic and to a lesser extent, Aaron Gordon, two-man and three-man games that I, they didn't need to work him in. And this year, I would love to see it. I imagine if you're Michael Porter, you would love to see it. Um, last year he was coming back from injury. And as you mentioned, he got more athletic as the year went on. So I think it was easier for him to accept a role because it was a recovery year for him. But this year, presumably coming in fully healthy, I imagine he would want that. And I imagine Denver can work him into more on ball touches, bend their, their offensive playbook to him a little bit more. The thing is it's just not needed. So that would almost be a token thing to do. Not necessarily a thing that makes your team better. I don't think it makes them worse. It's just that, but that's the interesting dynamic for Denver. Well, and just how does it – it's not needed until one of Murray and Jokic is on the bench. Mm. And he historically has not played a gigantic role in those in those minutes where, you know, as you mentioned in the regular season, Michael Malone just rarely staggers the two guys in the playoffs. He will. That's when, that's when the question of, like, can he play the four becomes relevant because – 
it, it's harder for like I can picture him screening for Jokic and it's like the way Aaron Gordon does in an inverted pick and roll and flaring out for threes and causing all sorts of problems. That's hard to do when Aaron Gordon's in the dunker spot and you can't roll to the basket. It's hard to do. So I defensively that I don't I don't know how viable that is, but those all I think he's the most interesting part of their team this year. So one of the things that I'm curious about with Michael Porter is he missed an entire season. He's played three seasons now. He didn't have a college basketball experience. And Denver plays not a super complex offense, but the ability to read the court is really important in their offense, their ability to read the floor. And if you watch them, again, as I assemble their playbook and look at different things, throughout the course of the year, they just keep adding wrinkles. They start with the base, and then they start doing counters, and then guys be able to read a little bit better. Here's what you do. Murray and Jokic's chemistry is off the charts. Uh, Jokic and, and Aaron it's Gordon's not even chemistry. Just off, it's not even off the charts. There's just no chart. The chart has been <laughs> yeah. burned and thrown in a fire. There's no chart. I think Aaron Gordon and Jokic are not far behind on a lesser role, but they still read each other so well. And Michael Porter, the more you dig into it, when they do put him in the Aaron Gordon spots, he just has less experience and reads it a little bit less. It's less dynamic than it is with Aaron Gordon because of the reads. And I don't know how much of that is. Well, now he has another season under his belt. Is he ready to read the court a little bit more? And maybe that's part of what's held Denver back from really opening up the playbook to him. I kind of suspect that the answer is yes. That and that this year he should be starting from a higher baseline so they can give him more. Um, but that's that's one of the questions that I would have in terms of opening Michael Porter's role. But I will disagree though with your premise in one way. The more I actually think the most interesting thing about Denver this year is not Michael Porter, which in theory he has a higher ceiling to kind of grab. For me, it's Mike, it's Jamal Murray, and I think the story of the Nuggets this year is going to be the story of Jamal Murray. I think this is a, as much as he has been, and I think proven himself in the playoffs, I think there's this question of how good is he actually and how good can he be over 82 games? And I think he is a pro- will approach this season trying to answer that question. Well, I said during the finals in one of our post-game podcasts with Wendy, I'm guaranteeing it now. He's making the all-star team. Like, mm. I don't, he usually gets off to this, like, why is Jamal Murray shooting 35% a month into the season? Oh, he's not even in the all-star conversation. He's averaging 16.2 points a game. I almost don't even care if he's averaging 16 points a game. I think the coaches are going to be like, I just saw that guy in the playoffs make every goddamn big shot, every momentum-stopping shot, every single the crowd in Miami is on its feet and maybe they're going to steal. No, Jamal Murray hit a dagger every time. We see what he does with Jokic. I think he's making an all-star team. But you're right. That's like that's a really great point because he's never even been in like the all NBA conversation. Like we never get to the end of the season. It's like, Oh, one of my last cuts is Jamal Murray. And you know, he's that good. The question like, and I assume he wants to be in that conversation. Well, there's a lot of money to be made if he does that conversation. So yes, but even the way you're phrasing this, Zach, and and it's a completely understandable, but it's even if he averages 16, a game, you know, this or that. But my point is, I think this is the year where he, will try to prove to people that he is more than that, that he is a 25-point-per-game scorer or what have you. I'm not saying he's shooting for a specific number, but I do think this is the year where he tries to fully answer just how good he is and where he belongs in the conversation here. And I've always, not always said, for the last really year and a half, I've said that Jokic and Murray, to me, can be this era's version of Kobe and Shaq. And that's a lot of respect and a lot of like potential to see in Jamal that I actually think, first of all, stylistically, not in terms of caliber, Lakers fans don't get mad at me when I say this, but stylistically, he reminds me more of Kobe than a Steph 
he he's in a phenomenal footwork player. He has a back to the basket game. He has he uses his size well. He's not particularly explosive, and he's not like a pull up off the dribble three point shooter like a, a Trey or a, a Dame or a guy that does that at volume. He's just very crafty. Has phenomenal footwork, and he gets to his spots and kind of muscles guys. And I think that this year, him kind of proving himself as a guy that can be that type of offensive engine alongside Jokic and being an all-star and being a guy that you look at and say, is he one of the three or four best guards in the NBA? I think this is the year where he reaches for that, and I think he probably achieves it. Well, in the playoffs, he's been that guy. I mean, that's the weird thing. He's like, no one doubts that he's that good. You know, by the way, who, who would be happiest of everyone in the world if everything you're saying came to fruition is Jokic. Jokic right. is like, dude, you want to average 25 in a regular season? You want to reach another level? I am so happy to throw like eight more fancy passes to you every game and let you cook for 82. Oh. Um, I think this is actually for a defending champion that feels proven and set in stone. I think given the young guys who are going to be elevated and what you said about Murray, what I said about Porter... I think this is going to be a kind of a fun regular season team. Not necessarily like going all out to win 60 games or anything. Just like there's some mysteries to solve. Um, But I will ask you, like, how much do you think they care about home court advantage? (laughs) Um, I think it matters. I think it matters a lot. If you look at them last year, they wanted to win the West. Once that uh, number one overall seed was within reach in early March and they punted on it. I think they look at seeding in the Western Conference and say, yeah, we want home games. We want as many as we can get in a playoff series. And you look at how good they were in the playoffs at home last year. I think they only lost game two against Miami. That was the only one. They're very good at home and very good in the playoffs. And I think getting a top two seed is probably going to be their their goal, um, you know, going into the play, uh, into the regular season. Because of your platform here, I always want to bring up things that I find really interesting about Yoke that dispel some of the common myths. And I want to share a story. I shared this on Twitter the other day. But there's a head coach for a team in Europe called Partizan, Jelko Obradovic. He's the Phil Jackson of Europe, winning his coach in EuroLeague history. And he shared a story about how Jokic last year surprised him by telling him that he watched his basketball seminar on YouTube. That this basketball coaching clinic that's hours long, Jokic apparently watched it and had some notes. And then he come to find out later in the season, he reached out with some notes on their team and some things that they should be doing differently And the coach understood the message and implemented these changes immediately. And also, he says that Jokic learned some things from Partizan that he brought to Denver and implemented to the Nuggets. The narrative on Jokic is that he's a guy that doesn't like basketball or maybe, you know, it's it's just a job to him. He does this or that. But Jokic is a really unique personality. And a guy that watches basketball seminars, hour-long basketball seminars on YouTube, and then scouts EuroLeague uh, basketball with strategic advice in mind, that's a guy that I I think it gives a little bit of of insight into who he is and how he thinks and cares about the game that he plays down. And I I think it's a little bit overlooked. The guy's obsessed about basketball. Obsessed is not a word that I've heard. You know, you, you're right. You wouldn't hear that about him because, and he plays into it too, right? Like he plays, totally. what is the parade? Oh God, the parade. Yep. I want to go back to Serbia. Um, and, and, but you, you don't read the game at that level, a, a like historic level without really thinking about it and envisioning it and having it run through your brain. Is there anything we've missed, whether it's cap situation, rotation questions, players you want to hit? Is there anything... Is there anything we big story, mini story we missed? 
Along these same lines, the only thing I would say is Jokic, we saw him coaching a lot on the sidelines last year in the playoffs, not necessarily in the regular season, but in the playoffs, a lot of grabbing the whiteboard, drawing up plays. Michael Malone talked about it a lot. His voice really picked up in the playoffs. Aaron Gordon goes out to Serbia this summer and spends a week with Jokic in Sambor, which I just love, by the way. I think this is one of the sneaky evolutions of Jokic over the last few years that has gone a little bit under the radar is that he's always been the quiet coach is the coach. I'm just the player, whatever he says goes. I think he has stepped into that part of it's my responsibility to sort of bring the team along and give strategic advice and kind of walk guys through. And when you talk about Porter, one interesting thing that could happen this year is Porter has, if he wants to make the next step, it's really a mental step about, okay, how do I start to read these things? And Jokic, I'm very curious to see how he approaches him because I think Aaron Gordon, Jamal Murray, he's really helped those guys develop chemistry. If he focuses in on the young guys you're mentioning, the Christian Brown, this or that, but also the Michael Porters, I just see little signs of him becoming more and more, not just comfortable, but eager to do those things. And that's something that to me would probably take the team to a whole other level. Well, Adam, doesn't feel like championship or bust because you can't. It's a, there's just no bust for the Denver Nuggets. Everything, everything is so feel good and so happy. But the Nuggets have reached a point where I mean, not winning the championship, depending on context and people get injured and all that. But right. I mean, that's that's the goal every year now. Like losing in the finals would be a disappointment if if everyone's healthy, right? I mean, that's kind of remarkable. I think the Nuggets view. Jokic is the caliber player that you should say championship or bust. I think that the organization feels, hey, we have a guy that if we do our parts right, we should have an open window you know, for the next several years. This is one of them, and you don't want to let those opportunities pass you up. So you're right that there's no like <laughs> – I think the the getting over the hump was you know, you, you almost have house money in a certain way. But I think Denver looks at their window and says, the next four years, we should win every year, or we should have a chance to win every year, and we don't want to let any of these pass us by. Adam Morris, you know this team better than anyone. Um, it has been a joy to watch, mostly from afar, but briefly up close in Denver, maybe again this year, what you have helped build in DNVR. It's just, and now it's spreading to more and more cities. Um, it's just a phenomenal story, and I know it's just all hard work. That's all it is, is work, work, work. But you have a bar, you have, a, a, I mean, I've got shirts from DNVR now. You've got apparel. It's, it's incredible, yeah. and it's all based on the commitment to the work and understanding the team and what makes it tick. Thank you for giving us a little bit of time and perspective on the pod, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Zach.